From Crooked Media, this is Unholier Than Thou. I'm your host, Philip Picardi. This week, we wrapped up a political moment for the ages, a socially distant, entirely virtual Democratic National Convention. Michelle Obama was the headliner of Night One, delivering an unforgettable speech. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. But amidst a sea of familiar politicians and a few choice Republicans, there was something a little different about this year's lineup of speakers. May God give you the grace never to sell yourself short, Grace to do something big for something good. Grace to remember that the world is too dangerous now for anything but truth and too small for anything but love. Right on the national primetime lineup were religious leaders tasked with offering prayers for the nation. Their front and center placement cast a spotlight on faith, something the Democratic Party typically shies away from. But how did faith become somewhat of an anomaly for the party? And what role does it play this year in an election the Democrats cannot afford to lose? Later on, we'll hear from Bishop Miriam Buddy, who delivered the moving benediction you just heard at the DNC on Tuesday night. But first, let's get to the politics. Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons, a fellow with the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative at American Progress, has worked extensively on articulating the political power of what he calls the religious left. Guthrie, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me on. Of course. I saw you recently tweeted that you were encouraged by the DNC's announcement of a coalition of faith leaders being invited to speak or offer prayers at the convention. Can you tell me why this is a significant occasion? For most Democrats, faith is part of our life, but it's not theocratic. You know, it's not the theocratic nut jobs of the Republican convention next week. So it often doesn't get noticed. And so I was very excited to see that the Democratic National Convention would feature faith leaders in prime time. There have been uh, faith leaders who spoke kind of offering invocation prayers and benediction prayers before. I think probably at every Democratic National Convention, or at least the ones I've seen. But to see them in prime time, like one of the first speakers last night, was really exciting because faith is a undervalued, I think, part of the Democratic coalition. And to see it at the forefront really excited me. It's interesting you say that. It, I, I'm wondering, do you feel the party typically in the past has tried to isolate themselves from appearing religious or faith-oriented? Yeah, the religious right has so tarnished what it means to show your faith in public that many Democrats with good reason and many people that have been harmed by religion with good reason don't want to talk about religion because it's seen as exclusive. Or if if I say I'm a Christian and I'm engaging politics as a Christian, that somehow seems like I don't want people who are Muslim or Jewish or any faith to engage their faith in the public square as well. So people have good reason to be wary of religion, but I think there is a positive place for people to engage their their faith, their morals, their values in the public square. And it drives, it's a reality that it drives many people uh, to support Democrats. And do you think that on the flip side, by Democrats not being so open or overtly embracing of religion, that they may actually be alienating voters? Yes. When people only hear about God from Trump, it really sends a 
a terrible signal. And I hear this from people all over the country who say, I want to vote Democratic, but I'm told that only, you know, I have to either either choose between my faith and my politics. And just promoting the existence of religious people that are Democratic, I think, goes a really long way in, sh- in just giving people an example that Joe Biden is a practicing Catholic, Kamala Harris is a practicing Baptist, Ilhan Omar practicing Muslim, Bernie Sanders talks about his Jewish values. And so just to see the diversity across all uh, the, the wide spectrum of people who are Democrats or progressives, it just shows people at a grassroots level that you don't have to give up your faith to be a Democrat and vote for Joe Biden. Now, on a more cynical level, do you think that this was an intentional shift of strategy on the Democrats' part this year by placing these speakers in more primetime slots to show that they also are a party of God to hopefully attract those voters? I hope it does attract the voters. I don't think it's cynical. The director of the DNC's Interfaith Outreach was a seminary professor of mine at Union Seminary in New York, and he taught a, he taught a class I took called Servant Leadership. And he's a servant leader, someone who was pastored for a long time. Uh, Reverend Derek Harkins is his name. And faith is real for him. I've seen it up close before. You know, he was in this current position. And it's real for so many people in the party. It was real for Hillary Clinton. It's real for Barack Obama. It's real for people that are Democrats. And so I don't think it's a ploy to get kind of a, you know, conservative people of faith. It's not this kind of ploy. It is bringing to the surface and coming out at, you know, people coming out as in their religious identities as Democrats. Mm. The New York Times recently ran a feature on Trump support among evangelical Christians who appear to largely be standing by the president for his reelection, most notably because of his conservative stances, including his hardline stances around abortion. I wonder if the Democrats can't capture the very powerful evangelical vote. Can you tell me who makes up this more progressive faith voter um, that's technically up for grabs in 2020? Sure. And if you go back, so let's go back to 2016. You had 81% of white evangelicals vote for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. But ignored in that whole kind of debate and everyone was talking about it and pundits were saying, how is this even possible? And you keep, you've seen so many stories like the one you're referencing in the New York Times about, you know, well, how could they do this? What's lost in that is that the rest of Christians in this country, not to mention people of faith in general, the majority voted for Hillary Clinton. And I was so dismayed by sort of why is no one talking about this that I had to go out and like crunch the numbers myself and then pitch it to the Washington Post and then get it in a story in the Post because I was like, it was a it was mind bending that we're just talking about white evangelicals. And then this, what I called in the, in the piece, other Christians were two to one in terms of the size in the electorate. So it depends on how you, white evangelicals are, it's uh, people have different ways of counting who is an evangelical and who's not, but it's somewhere around 15% of the country. And yes, they are really in uh, lockstep with Trump because they want to criminalize abortion. They want to, you know, take away my marriage to my husband, who's a Presbyterian pastor, which seems odd uh, because of their faith. 
So they, they are in lockstep with the president's policies because he caters his policies to people that are super conservative. Mm. So they have that small constituency. But the religiosity of the Democratic Party is something, you know, there are some white evangelicals in it, yes, but it's much larger. It's uh, And actually the most consistent group in the 2016 election were, were black Protestants who voted over 90% for Hillary Clinton. And often kind of left out of this discussion about religion and politics for some reason. Yeah. And you say that a lot of your work is devoted to amplifying a, quote, progressive vision of religious liberty. So I wonder, what does that look like for you when it comes to politics? What do these progressive religious folks want from their elected officials? Well, the in terms of religious liberty, it's such an important issue that is misunderstood right now that the number one issue in terms of religious liberty in our country is repealing President Trump's Muslim ban. And Joe Biden has promised to repeal the Muslim ban and there's legislation in Congress right now. So when I talk about reclaiming religious liberty, I mean what it's meant to be, which is that everyone is able to practice their faith freely. Now, what Republicans and uh, many white evangelicals want is to turn religious liberty into a license to discriminate and a license to, you know, be exempt from non-discrimination laws and a license to deny women birth control. That is taking a very good concept and grossly distorting it to be like, I want to be able to do whatever I want. So, but the cause of progressive Christianity and progressive people of faith is much larger. It's part of every kind of progressive movement you see, whether that's the environment or immigrants' rights or LGBTQ rights or reproductive freedom or the Black Lives Matter movement. You see progressive people of faith are active in all of those movements. And for many of us, there's no conflict in in being a part of the progressive movement. It's because of our faith that, that we're active in it. I do wonder, There, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people in the party who believe in the firm separation of church and state. But I wonder if you think that the party's invitation of faith leaders uh, to the convention this week at all contradicts the value of the separation of church and state. I don't see any contradiction there. The religious diversity of the Democratic Party, including a sizable number of people who are not affiliated with any religious tradition, is a cause of celebration. Every Democratic politician, you know, quotes Dr. King They just leave out the reverend from Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. There's a place for people bringing their faith into the public square in a way that's inclusive. And actually, when we talk about uh, uh, theocracy and the religious right and uh, Christian nationalism being on the rise in this country, we actually there's a, a great campaign called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. And there's a lot of um The Americans United for the Separation of Church and State is a great organization, and I've worked closely with them uh, and their faith outreach uh, person because a lot of faith groups are committed to separating church and states, you know, uh, affirming the First Amendment and reclaiming a positive vision. But the vision of church and state separation that we have is not nobody can talk about their faith or, you know, we don't pray at events, or uh, that's an anti-religious view that I think is incredibly harmful to the party and needs to be called out. Guthrie, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me on. We'll be right back after this. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. The service is available for clients worldwide, and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. They even offer financial aid. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. They offer licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. The service is both convenient and affordable, and anything you share is confidential. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com unholy. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot unholy. If appealing to the religious left should be an aim of the Democratic Party, then there are few faith leaders more fit for the DNC stage than Bishop Marion Buddy. Bishop Buddy prompted national headlines for criticizing Donald Trump's photo op in front of St. John's Church. You may remember the pictures. He was posing with an upside-down Bible when, just moments before, protesters with the Movement for Black Lives were tear-gassed in an effort to clear the way for the president's picture. St. John's Church is in Bishop Buddy's diocese. For more on these events, you can check out episode two of this podcast when we interviewed Reverend Jenny Gerbasi, who was there at the scene. Bishop Marion Buddy's benediction on Tuesday night then was more than colored by her willingness to take a stand against Trump and for God. Hi, Bishop. Thank you so much for being here with me today. By the time this airs, you will have given the benediction at the Democratic National Convention. I'm wondering what it meant for you to be asked to participate. Well, I am honored always when invited to engage in events of public significance. Uh, This was a bit more, uh, I had to think about this one a little bit more because of the partisan nature of a political convention, right? I mean, there's, it's, it's highly partisan in that it is the Democratic Party's uh, electing convention. And as a religious leader, while I am engaged and often very clear about the issues that I um, advocate, I don't tend to uh, endorse candidates or speak in a way that would be um, suggestive of partisanship. But I, you know, I thought about it a long time. I crafted a prayer that I would gladly offer at the Republican National Convention. And I I also felt that I wanted to demonstrate to some people in the wider society who have come under the mistaken assumption that Christians only think or vote one way in this country, that we are actually a very broad, um, uh, we, we cross a broad spectrum of political engagement, and I wanted to represent part of that breadth. There's a lot to unpack there, but I guess let's start with um, what you just said, which is sort of alluding to the fact that the Democratic Party isn't exactly known for being a party of religion, certainly not the party of Christianity the way that the Republican Party is. And that does make your presence this week much more significant. I wonder, why do you think it's important for you and your fellow colleagues in faith to be present tonight? Yeah, 
first of all, it's a it's a relatively new phenomenon. This alliance between a broad swath of what's often called evangelical Christianity and the Republican Party. That's that's not you know that 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 doesn't go back very far in our history, but it's pretty cemented in public perception, and certainly there is a strong voting block within a certain section of Christianity. I would say that religious people and and Christians in particular have always been represented on on kind of the whole spectrum of society because we are a part of society. So for example, during the years leading up to the Civil War, there were Christians who would advocate a pro-slavery position on the basis of their understanding of scripture. And there were abolitionists who were fighting against slavery for the very same citing the same Bible, right? Um, Similarly, as we go through uh, women's suffrages, we go through the civil rights era, certainly the issues of our time, there have always been Christians and people of faith across the spectrum. But we are not, um, those of us who are more involved on the public good side of conversation, we've become muted or less influential or less noticed. And I for that reason, I, I was really clear that I want people to know that Christians Christians show up in the public square uh, fighting for all sorts of things and advocating all sorts of things. And and this election is a particularly important one. It is. And, and in fact, you've been an outspoken critic of President Trump, most notably after he tear-gassed protesters in order to take a photo with a Bible in his hand in front of St. John's Church, which is across from the White House. Uh, I understand that's a church in your diocese. Yes. Why was it so important for you to speak out, especially, you know, as you say, it it sounds like it's also important for you to appear nonpartisan. Right. I felt it was incumbent upon me to say in a public way that the spiritual mantle that President Trump seemed to be claiming with the Bible and with um, his photograph in front of uh, an Episcopal church was not his to claim and that it didn't belong to him. And it certainly didn't justify the words and actions that preceded that. And I felt it was really important that someone um, in the religious community say that. And because it is, as you said, the the diocese that I serve, I felt it was mine to do. And I I was clear about that. And I have been critical of the president at other times uh, because there are times, I know there are times when I feel it's important for me and others to say when and if a public leader has done something that is egregious or morally damaging or socially damaging. And, and there have been, unfortunately, uh, uh, many occasions in this presidency where we have needed to do that, but I'm pretty consistent in showing up in the times and places where we feel that religious and moral values are at stake, not to protect the church. It's not about protecting the church. It's about what's best for the wider society and what values, universal values, can I, as a Christian leader, put forth that are consistent with the ideals of our society? Sure. And and there's a lot at stake in this upcoming election, as you've also alluded to. Right. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, if you think it's possible to separate one's faith from one's politics, particularly this November. 
Well, individually, I would say, well, yes and no. I think it's possible in the sense that it's always important for people of faith to recognize that we, uh, our allegiance spiritually is not, is to God as we understand God and, and the the particularities of the faith tradition. So as a Christian, for me, the the teachings and the examples of Jesus and my understanding of his presence in my life. So that that is a that's a category unto itself. But how I live that out in the wider society, each one of us will be drawn to the the political movements or the social movements that seem to best align with our efforts to be faithful to that what that larger or that transcendent call no political party can be identified with you know with the mandates of god but there are times when in anyone's judgment at a particular moment a a person or a party or a platform is more consistent and therefore would be one that that we would be inclined to support. Uh, As a bishop, I don't assume that everyone in the diocese I serve is of one mind about anything. And so I can't, I'm not the Pope. I don't speak with an authority that is, that supersedes conscience and um, that's not true for the Pope either, but you know what I'm saying? I have a limited- I do. Authority. Um, And so I don't- Sure. Speak for people as if they're all going to fall in lockstep behind me. In fact, for Episcopalians, that's just laughable. I mean, they just, they think what they think and they, they do what they do. That's part of the gift of our tradition. Right. But at the same time, I do have a responsibility to speak from my position. And I do that. And I let people know that's what I'm doing. I'm not expecting them all to agree with me, but I am going to use my voice and my platform when I feel it's critical. And I do in this election. So you don't think that your benediction is at all a contradiction to the sanctity, as you call it, of the separation of church and state? Oh, heavens no. I don't think that at all. I think in some ways the separation of church and state was to protect churches from being discriminated against in the public arena by having a state-sanctioned church, right? So every, it was, it was meant, it's the exact opposite of what people think sometimes, which is every religious organization has a place in the public square, as opposed to um, the older models that we saw in Europe when this country was being founded of, of a state church, and we don't have that. But that doesn't mean that Christians or Jews or Muslims or any person of faith can abdicate their role as an active member of, of, of civic society. So we do that. But I also think it's clear to remember that um, when we endorse candidates, that we're crossing a line that is probably best not not crossed because it 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 it, it goes it goes against a, a long-standing tradition of keeping ourselves focused on the issues and less on the on the political parties themselves. Well, having said that, having said that, I would say that assessing the the quality of leadership of the current president and determining that he is not qualified to be our leader, I would dare say that's not a partisan statement anymore. I think a line has been crossed. I have come to the conclusion that you could be a loyal member of the Republican Party and still determine that President Trump is not a suitable candidate for the presidency. Yes, I would happen to agree with you. But having said that, would you accept the invitation to offer a benediction at the Republican National Convention? 
I would. And, and I would because I feel like there's an opportunity to pray. And I never, I don't think I'd pass up an opportunity to pray. I have, I have real concerns about the direction of the country under the leadership of this president. And I also think his behavior is objectionable on so many levels that it is, it's important for people of faith to, to say that. Um, I do think his, his actions and his words are beneath the office of the president of the United States and, and not just in a distasteful way, but in a dangerous way. I am not afraid to say that I believe that the soul of the country is at stake. Now, I don't think he's the only one responsible for the way, the drift or whatever it is that's happening to us right now. Sure. I had, this is the first time I have said this publicly, so I, I, may, um, I may come to regret it <laughs> based on what happens as a result, but I, I don't think so. I, I, think I, I think I could sleep well tonight saying what I have said to you. And I have many Republican friends and, and colleagues in Washington, D.C., as you might imagine. I mean, it's, uh, it's a bipartisan community. Now, having said that, the number of people that have already dismissed me as their spiritual leader because of the positions I've taken are many. I recognize that what I have said to you would be considered a highly partisan statement among many people. And I I can't say that I blame them, but that's how I feel. It does go to show you the very many ways in which even being partisan has sort of been weaponized because we are living, as you've said, in extraordinary circumstances where condemnation of the president's actions and in a, really his inability to effectively be a president should not be partisan. And yet um, here we are living in a very polarized society. Not only polarized, but the amount of deliberate deception and casual spreading of blatant misinformation, um, blatant lies is what I, I think I take most, I mean, I, I take objection to a lot of things, but I think on a governing level, that is, that, that crosses a line. And I'm not saying that hasn't happened before in American history, I'm not naive about that, but I, this is the time I'm living in, and this is the president that I have lived under as, as, as had everyone else. And I'm ready to say that I, I believe that it is time for this country to have a different president. It's uh, we don't have all the time in the world to fix some of the things that have come that are staring at us um, as a nation and as a species. And so we need to have our wits about us and we need our best people doing the work. Uh, None of us are perfect. None of us sees perfectly. Certainly Democratic Party is not perfect, but I do long for functioning government governance with a common definition of what constitutes a fact and a common understanding of the importance of scientific data that leads us in a direction that can certainly regarding the pandemic move us to a place of health once again and a and and some policies that would allow us to have the kind of social reckoning that is long overdue and that this pandemic has laid bare Um, so i you know i just feel like you know, time is running out and let's, let's be brave. Let's be brave. Bishop Buddy, thank you so much for your time and good luck this evening. Um, I will be watching. Okay. All the best to you. Take care.
It's clear that this year is an extraordinary one, and we need everyone, faithful and unfaithful, to show up to the ballot box. This election, perhaps more than any in modern history, raises crucial questions about the conscience of America. So what better time than now to very much rethink who gets to control the narrative about faith in our country? In other words, if Democrats are taking back the White House, why not take back religion too? And hey, before we roll the credits, we've heard from so many of you about your ideas for an episode of Unholier Than Thou. You can email us your ideas, your thoughts, and your compliments on my eyebrows to unholy at crooked.com. That's unholy at crooked.com. Unholier Than Thou is a Crooked Media production. Our producers are Adriana Cargill and Elisa Gutierrez, with production support from Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Taka Yasuzawa, and our executive producers are Lyra Smith and Sarah Geismer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.